accountability with others. You have to have other people help you because your brain that's supposed to protect you will fail. You will, if, if it's just about you, you have no chance because the alcohol companies, their interest is to find the flaws in your, in your brain and give you kind of the kind of opportunity to do something that goes against you. So if you want to solicit the help of others, you will fail. And I think that is in my mind what's true for a lot of things in the world right now. A lot of things become addictive or tempting or difficult to manage uh, and we need help. Is it either of some entity that we kind of endow with the power to regulate the world and change things or friends or just uh, systems that created allow us to do that. Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where I'm honored to talk to one of my personal heroes, world-renowned neuroscientist, Dr. Moran Cerf, who boasts one of the most impressive resumes you'll ever find. Going from robbing banks and hacking video games to now cracking open the skull and peeking inside the brain while the person is still living, Moran now uses his wealth of knowledge to consult Hollywood shows, teach marketing and attention management to businesses, and even record your dreams. So Moran, welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. Pleasure to be here. So excited to have you. And so I think the only logical place to start here is with robbing banks. So can you share with our listeners for a bit what it's like to walk into a bank and actually rob it? Uh, scary <laughs> and uh, very unpredictable. I, I'm glad I did it when I was in my early 20s because I think that uh, at some point you learn about the world and you kind of gather insights that make you question your choices. And that's one of them. Like I, I have no idea if I would be able to do it these days when I'm a little older and I guess uh, more risk averse. <laughs> I bet. So, 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 so what was that moment like when you were just, you're just walking in there and like, can we imagine it just like the movies where <laughs> you know, the sirens go off and you're standing there? Or? I mean, so I did it in a way in the safest uh, version of uh, bank robbing possible and still scary. So the way I did it, uh, if the listeners don't know, is I was working as a computer hacker. Uh, that's the early 2000s, so about you know, 18 years ago. And we were uh, hired by the bank's board. So this would be the people that oversee the bank to try to test their security and see if we can actually hack into the bank and get access to that. And occasionally, rarely, but still at times, we would physically try to break into the bank and uh, steal money from the safe. Most times we just did it virtually by you know, getting an account and hacking into the system and just transferring money from one place to another. That's much safer. Occasionally, we were actually asked by the banks to test the security physically to so see if the cameras would figure out what's going on, if someone leaves a post-it note next to the computer with their password that you can kind of say this is not secure physically. So that's when we would try to rob the banks. And this would be us basically coming into a bank and putting a note in front of the teller saying, this is a bank robbery, please do A, B, and C. Uh, no matter how many uh, assurances we had that everything's okay, like we had, you know, we spoke to the police many times before. We spoke to the bank's owners to make sure that they are ready to bail us if something falls apart. We had kind of access to our own team of security guards that would basically help us kind of mitigate some conflict if it emerges. It was still uh, scary, and I was uh, shaking every time we were about to do that. I bet, I bet. And what, what I find so fascinating about you is like you have these 
the series of skill sets that you just start applying in so many different areas. And there's this transfer of skill, right? Where like you go from, from just hacking to actually robbing the banks, then later to neuroscience. And there's just so many different branches and areas that you've sort of mastered in your life. Um, so can you share a little bit about that the first big transfer about when you, you know, met your hero, Francis Crick, and he asked you to go from hacking to actually hacking the, the human brain then? Yeah. So I'll say two things. One, one is that, uh, People typically tell their story backwards. They kind of look at where they ended up and try to go backwards in time and kind of connect the dots and suggest how event A led to event B at event C. So now looking backwards, I put the kind of the line in weaving the dots and kind of say that this was an eventful moment that changed everything. Normally you don't know those when they happen. Uh, you kind of later on realize what they are. The second thing is that this was, uh, like you said, a monumental event that as you look at your life, you can you know, typically count only handful of those that you say, this was a moment that kind of I moved from A to B. This is in the movies, the minute the protagonist is kind of a, confronted with a fork in the road and has to choose if he goes left or right. And that's kind of determining the, the plot line. So to me, this was a moment when I was in my uh, mid twenties. So about 10 years ago, uh, when I was uh, working as a hacker, ended up in uh, California on a hacking task to uh, test the security of a company and use the free time that I had when I was traveling the world to go listen to lectures and meet people that normally kind of, I would not encounter regularly. That's when I ended up somehow miraculously in an event where Francis Crick uh, spoke about his interest in consciousness and following many of those academic events, there's typically uh, reception where the speaker and people from the audience get together and kind of chat and converse. And I used the opportunity to actually kind of meet with him and speak to him and mentioned to him my current employment uh, at the time, which was a bank robber or hacker. And he was fascinated by that because at the time it was even less uh, known than now as a profession. So he said, can you do that? How does it work? He had many questions like any curious scientist about the systems and so on. And the more I spoke about it, it became evident to him that there was a lot of uh, knowledge that hackers possess that is relevant to science, statistics, programming, uh, understanding people's psychology and how they respond and generally this love of mystery and black boxes. And because he himself was somewhat of a hacker during World War II, he was the guy in charge in England on uh, basically breaking the codes of uh, the radio transmissions or the signals, that, uh, the, the radar signals of the uh, Germans. He found that, that for him, the skills that he acquired as a hacker in the war were very helpful in pursuing his science career, which led to the discovery of the DNA and, and basically decrypting the double helix signal. So he suggested that maybe in the same way, if I know how to break into banks, there could be use for that in the world of neuroscience. That's the oh, moment. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. So, so what was going on in your, on your head there? Because it is quite a big jump and leap, right? Going from this very successful career, an exciting career that probably wasn't very boring, um, to just completely restarting your life, basically getting a PhD and then starting a new field. So, so how do you make those sense of those decisions in your mind? So I think that, uh, you know, there's a, so I, I, I can tell you that uh, what needs to happen is that you need to accumulate uh, 
a lot of uh, baggage, I would call it, from other decisions before you take this one that changes everything. And sometimes for the same conditions, you might not make the same decision if you didn't have the, the previous baggage. I'll give you a concrete example. I talk to my students about dieting. Many of them are interested in dieting or, or they care about that. And dieting could be an example for any uh, thing that you try to use self-control for. Like you want to do something and it's hard and you're trying to kind of fight your own brain in doing that. So the example I give my students that would be relevant is that uh, some people... Uh, they're on a diet. So they want to not eat uh, fatty, sugary food. And they start walking in the street and suddenly they see next to them a pastry shop with tasty uh, kind of croissant and uh, pan au chocolat, all kinds of things. And they say, no, I'm on a diet, so I'm not going to go in. And they don't. And they continue walking. And then they see another store, maybe 100 feet later, uh, that offers cakes. And they say, no, I'm on a diet, I'm not going to go into it. And then they keep walking and they see a third and a fourth and a fifth store. And by the sixth store, they say, you know what? I resisted five times. Now I'm going to allow myself to six time. In a way, from the brain's perspective, it doesn't matter. Like the brain doesn't, doesn't care that you managed to not eat five times. And then as long as you, if you did it, then it counts. Like the calories go whether they are the sixth store you've seen or the first one. So the failure is the same. But from our perspective, brain-wise, the fact that I endured the uh, resistance, first, second, third, and fourth time, sometimes actually somehow changes our thinking. So we give up on the sixth time because we already accumulated and used all of our cognitive resources to stop ourselves six times. To the question about decision-making, in many ways, I you know, tell the story as if this was a moment where there was a fork in the road and I made the choice and that was it. But there are a lot of things in my life that potentially were there that I couldn't place. For instance, I was 25. This is like a time in your life where you are prone to change things anyhow. So maybe that was part of it. If I met Francis Crick at 29, I maybe would have not done it. I was working in a company for about four years at a time and the company was doing well and I was very secure in my job. I feel that this allowed me to kind of trust myself and my gut instinct that I can do that. If I was in an economy that was a lot more volatile and I wasn't sure that the things were going to work out, I might not have made the same choice for the same conditions. I had a, a loving partner at the time who I felt would stay with me no matter what I do. So because we were in a good relationship, I said, okay, I can... I have this kind of safe so I can look at other things and be unsafe there. So a lot of things are not counted as the things that made you make the choice. You can only look at the moment we had a choice and kind of what were the elements there. But I feel that all of those environmental things are actually part of the choice. They just get overlooked a little bit. Yeah, I love that. I really want to dive later deep into like those environmental things that actually influence our behavior oftentimes without us even like being aware of it, right? Um, but first of all, I mean, when you started out then, then with, your, with your PhD work and, and neuroscience, like the thing that I find interesting is like you started out thinking so big, right? So you actually write, wrote down this list of, of things that you wanted to study. It wasn't like the, the easy peasy thing, right? So can you share with our listeners a bit, like what were some of the topics that like right from the start, you were like, I want to learn this. Like I want to, you know, I should sure. get so in that. On my list, when I said I'm going to go to neuroscience were a... A number of questions that I felt were worthy of the five year that a PhD takes and kind of an ambitious endeavor. I wrote in the list that I want to understand how consciousness works, how dreams work, whether humans have free will. I, I wrote some things that weren't in neuroscience because they were still fascinating and I thought maybe they're going to be relevant. I wrote that I want to understand what happened in the beginning of time before the Big Bang, so to speak, other aliens, things that I knew were not in the realm of neuroscience. But I said, you've got to have this list 
of things you're interested in. I think my advice to anyone who's listening is that anyone should have this list in some drawer next to them. So it's, most, it's likely that many of us are not going to get to pursue all the things we are interested in or even sometimes one of those things. But it's important to have this compass that says, if I had all the resources, the time, the money, the energy, this is what I'm interested in. And I think it's important to keep that. Like I think people many times forget the compass because the day-to-day takes away. I, I'll give you a, even a concrete kind of a way of doing it. When I teach uh, MBA students at Kellogg, uh, many of them come to get an MBA because their aim is to use the MBA as a, a stepping stone to an improvement of their career. So they worked in some career and they want to either change career or uh, increase their kind of you know, level in the companies that they come from. And the, the MBA is the way to do that. And they use the two years MBA to kind of ponder upon uh, different options for their life and careers and so on. And they come to me many times asking advice. They seek advice and they say, Professor Surf, what do you think I should do with my life or what can I do? And I, and I try to probe them and ask them things about what they care about. And I think that in the history of my doing that with students, I always get the same answer, which I think is the wrong answer. So if I ask a student, like an MBA student, let's say Max, I say, Max, what do you want to do? Most of them don't answer what they want to do. They answer what they can do. They say, well, all my life I was uh, in tech, so I think that what I should do is, and I said, well, no, that's not the question I asked. I, 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 if you want to be a ballet dancer, maybe the next sentence would be there's no chance because ballet dancers have to start age five and you're like 30 now and your body's not aligned and you're going to fail. But at least you should have this note that says, I really want to be a ballet dancer. And then we kind of see how to get kind of around that because many times you won't get what you wanted, but you can incorporate that into what you get. So the last sentence I would say about that before I go on a tangent is that uh, if I at some point thought that uh, being a therapist would be a fantastic career for me, it's a true story. I actually at some point considered that and said like, this is interesting uh, venue. I can help people. There are a lot of like uh, uh, things that I'm good at that uh, align with this job description. And I wrote in this note, maybe I should go and study to become a therapist. And then I went away and I, don't do that. And I have nothing to do with that uh, in my career kind of description, in my job description. But at the same time, because I remember that, that anchor, I noticed that as a professor who studies the brain, very different, many times my students come to my office, sit on the couch in front of me, share with me their life story and ask for advice. And I, get, and I tell myself, you know what, you didn't get the formal education in that. You didn't get to do that uh, as a profession, but some of the things that you liked in it, a part of your life right now. And that's a way to say, okay, you know what? I didn't get the thing that's on the note, but I get a component of that. And I think that for that, it's important to have this note. So I, I, my story, as you said, was dreams, consciousness, free will, aliens, beginning of time, and some other things. I got to answer maybe two of those, which is already surprising compared to what people expected. But the fact that I have this list reminds me every now and then what's the kind of heading that I'm uh, interested in. You know, I love this aspect of really setting that North Star and that, that big dream, right? Of like what you actually want to do with your life and then having that self-awareness too and also be honest with yourself and say, hey, these are the things I'm really interested in, not just what's easy and convenient. So I, I love that. And I really want to also later dive deeper into like how do we actually build that self-awareness from a neuroscientific perspective? So how do we get some of those insights and some of that clarity? Um, but first, what I, what I love about that story is like you actually accomplish or – the world thought you accomplished one of 
those big ones um, already in your PhD when you got published in Nature, and the world actually thought you were, you know, recording dreams already. Um, so I love that story. So can you share a little bit about about that experience and what you learned from, you know, apparently recording dreams? <laughs> That's a funny story and, and also telling on, on the reverse of the story how uh, some things that you know change your life positively uh, could also go backwards. You can have events that shape your life negatively and you need to kind of make lemonade out of that. So uh, when I was doing my PhD, my research involved studying patients undergoing brain surgery. So these are people that have brain surgery for some clinical purpose during which we open their brain and stick electrodes inside their head uh, that eavesdrop on the activity of neurons inside and tell us what they're thinking about. So if you're a patient, we would open your brain, put electrodes inside your head, connect those to a computer that records your brain activity continuously. And then when you wake up, you sit there and you just talk to us normally, but you also have your brain open and we get feed from your cells telling us what's in your mind right now. This was my PhD's research. And my primary kind of outcome was the ability to actually look at people's brains while they were talking and project their thoughts. So they would think about something and I would just read the brain activity and project an image on the screen that reflected what they were thinking about. The important thing to know is that all of those people were awake and I could ask them, what are you thinking about? And compare what I show on the screen to what they said they were thinking about. So I would know that I did the right job. And this was, as you said, published in a very prestigious journals uh, and spoke about the marvel of being able to basically decode brain activity in real time and show it on a screen. But when it came out, uh, I think people's imagination went a little bit of, uh, farther than what uh, we actually did. And at some point, the question came from a reporter, could this be taken not just to decode people's thoughts when they're talking to you and awake and kind of interacting with you, but also when they're sleeping and basically give us access to their dreams? And the answer was no. Uh, we did not do that. Uh, whether it's true or not, I didn't know at the time, but I said we didn't do that. And then the person kind of kept probing and said, but is it possible to do that? And I said, you know what? I don't know, but maybe it's possible. And that was the end of the conversation. He hung up the phone and said, uh, okay, that's great. Great quote. It's potentially possible. And a few hours later, the headline on many news uh, sites was scientists say the dream encoding is possible. And once you have this headline that is kind of, especially in 2010, which was even less kind of in the public uh, kind of domain, uh, it immediately became like, you know, fire uh, in, in a forest. Like everyone uh, wanted to know about it. Everyone started calling me about it. The headlines kept amplifying from possible, it was done, it was done repeatedly, it was done by a scientist forever, they work with the CIA and they collect our thoughts. And before long, I became the scientist who can record dreams uh, for all purposes. And I had to spend a lot of time saying that it was impossible and it was misinterpretation and it's not true and so on. And to cut the long story, uh, so your audience with like the nuances of that, I would say that uh, the, the kind of cool twist in that story is that I spent about 10 days explaining to everyone in the world why this was impossible and like not true. And then about three years later, someone did it. Wow. And the way they did it was by looking at my work, uh, reading the news articles that spoke about what it meant, which is that it, it can be used to record dreams, not knowing that it was not true. They just assumed that it was true, so they kept following up on that. And in fact, they were the ones to first uh, record dreams, thinking that they're the second, but actually they were the first to do that. And uh, 
three years after I got a call from the same reporters saying, you said it was impossible three years ago. Well, it was done. What's your comment right now? And then I have to walk back my mistake. I saying, actually, when I said it's impossible, I was wrong. It was uh, apparently possible. And I just like, uh, was premature in saying that something is not possible. Since then, I always err on the side of the first mistake. I always say things are possible, even if they weren't done, because I think that uh, that's the beauty of science. Uh, things quickly become reality. The saying uh, among my students in the lab is the difference between science fiction and science is timing. And that's wow. my strong belief now. Wow. You know, that is such a cool story. And it really goes back to this power of narrative that we create around our lives and around our work, right? So like, if, if the guy in, in over in Japan had thought like, it's actually impossible, he probably would have never tried, right? Or at least not to the extent. And so I love what you're saying here about like having that belief that, that then basically allows us to actually go out and do that thing. There's a famous story that uh, I'm not sure if it's even true or a myth, but uh, uh, for a while there were a lot of uh, runners who tried to break the uh, six-minute mile record. So it, it was thought to be impossible to run a mile in six minutes. And a lot of runners tried that and they got closer. They got to six minutes and a half, seven minutes. They, they really kind of pushed the boundaries. This requires really almost sprinting for the entire mile. But, uh, but they couldn't break it. And there were particularly, I feel, I may be butchering the details, but maybe six runners that were kind of breaking each other's records every couple of uh, weeks by shaving a second. So from like six and a half, they went to 6.29, 6.28, but they kind of hovered on the realm of 6.30, like far from uh, the one uh, minute, the six minute uh, mile record. And then one day, one of them did it. One of them, one of them kind of shaved 30 seconds and broke the six-minute mile. And the day after, all other five did the same thing. Because once it was known to be possible, suddenly everyone did it. And I think that's true for a lot of things in life. If, if, if we think it's impossible, we don't really give it our whole. And once we know it's possible, it becomes part of our kind of experience. And we just live life as if it's a possibility and we make it happen. Yeah, I love that. And you also talk about this, this inherent self-deception that, that we have in our brains in the sense that our reality is actually not determined by what we see so much as our brain and how that reacts and creates our world around us. So can you talk to us a little bit about how our brains really shape reality and how we can maybe even use that to our advantage to create a worldview that is actually useful and beneficial? So, so the thing to know neuroscience-wise, and I'm sorry if I'm losing some of the audience on technicalities, is that the brain doesn't really create a mapping of the world inside our head that is what we call reality. Our brain comes equipped with a model of the world and the eyes and the nose and the ears offer us more information that the brain uses to adjust things. So when you look at me right now, in a way your brain created a model of me in your mind and then your eyes offer new information that adjusts the image. Um, the world is mostly in our head and very little of the outside world influences it, but it changes that. So uh, if I somehow start floating upside down, it will take quite some time for you to actually see that, even though your eyes will see that because your brain will try uh, forcefully to fit that into reality. So like people don't float upside down. So the fact that the eyes propose something means that I'm dizzy, so it will think that it's blurry, the image will be blurry, you would not see what's going on. Like you would take a couple of seconds to create a new model of reality where I'm upside down and you will have to say, okay, how do I explain that? Like the brain would not easily just like project what 
our eyes show inside. It will actually take time to process that because perception is different than actual reality. And there's two systems there. Now that's kind of abstract what I just said. Uh, there are many times where we can actually materialize those abstract ideas. For instance, if you see uh, optical illusions, that's usually a time where there's a conflict between what your eyes see and what your brain processes. If you ever played the game, uh, Where's Waldo? Where you have like, to find this little character in a picture full of uh, characters, your eyes see Waldo the first minute. Like the photons from Waldo are there. So it's in your brain, but somehow your brain doesn't see it because it needs to move this spotlight of attention in your head into the image that you're getting inside and kind of decide to focus on something and see it. So there's a gap between what our eyes see and what our mind experiences. Knowing that, we can do all kinds of fancy stuff. In my lab, for instance, we play with actually showing people an image, but poking in their brain with those electrodes, such that what they see is not what their eyes see. So, so, so the image that comes to the retina is an image of, say, Max, but somehow the person would argue that what they see is their mom. And everyone can see that that's not what their eyes are seeing, but that's what they experience. From their perspective, what's in front of them is their mom. They have no idea why other people argue something else. And if you take it philosophically to something that could actually help the audience, I think that that's not new, but I think scientifically now uh, supported by the data, the world that you experience is up to you to manifest. Uh, if someone says something that's nasty to you, the Auditory cortex got the signals from the vibrations of the molecules in the air, the sound came in, and you process that. But whether you get hurt or not is an entirely different process that you can choose to act on, manifest, regulate. So there's kind of a gap that the more people get better in regulating their thoughts, they learn how to uh, be less volatile and reactive to things that they don't like, for instance, to choose uh, how to experience uh, emotions or encounters that come at them. And I think that is what a lot of people that I'm told practice meditation and are really good in a relationship and a kind of in self-regulation are doing well. They learn how to let those two systems work in concerts such that it's not that whatever comes to the brain immediately activates a feeling or an experience, but you have a filter that says, how do I want those experiences to manifest themselves? And I think that's a skill that we can learn Scientists know how to measure it and, and kind of figure out how to help it work. But every person who's listening to it can also train themselves to get better in doing just that, separating what you experience from how you experience it. Wow, I love this. It really sounds like you're, you're creating this additional filter in your brain between like the event and the response that you're going to like choose out of that, right? And become more aware and more purposeful in how we choose to act based on like the inputs that are coming into the brain through our senses. Exactly. I mean, I think that it wasn't me who did it. Nature gave it to us. Like it comes built into our brain, the separation of two modules, the, 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 the sensing and the experiencing. It's just that uh, for most of us, we spend a lot of time basically mapping them one to the other. So we don't kind of use the filters that nature gave us. Uh, that's kind of how we come to the world. And over the years, we learn to improve the filtering. So babies don't have this filter at all. Whatever they experience, they manifest. If something is bad, they cry. If something is good, they laugh. They don't have any filter of the environment. A lot of animals behave in the same way. They don't have this prefrontal cortex, the system that is geared towards uh, evaluating the inputs and deciding how to respond to them. And as we age humans, and as we get 
better in learning kind of what's advantageous for us, we're typically learning how to do that. And some people are better than others. We know now that there's genetic components to what makes you better or worse at that, but we know that for every person, this is a trained quality. So the younger you are in training that, you will actually manifest in your brain better ability to do that. And the more you train for that, you will do that. I mean, I'm not surprising in a way. It's like cognitive behavioral therapy, a type of uh, kind of treatment is all about that. You expose people to things, you teach them how to uh, reshape the environment and the experiences and gradually get better. I think that what we add is an understanding of the neuroscience of that, like where are those systems located and how they operate and what can we do and how can we quantify how good you are at that before you even start a therapy. But in a way, it should be a skill that everyone could learn and that we should teach people at a young age and definitely if they have challenges that require doing a better job at that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So I want to go back to dreams for a second, because what's cool is like you actually joined that dream recording team two years later after it, it was made possible, right? So can you share with us a little bit about what is sort of the current state of affairs? Like what's currently possible in terms of, you know, understanding people's dreams and learning also how to manipulate them? So essentially the, the, uh, the dream research is broken down to a couple of streams one stream is the stream, the kind of old-fashioned Freud and Carl Jung stream, which is we don't look at the dream, we wait for you to wake up, and you tell us what you think your dreams were. And even though there are more and more evidences that what you speak about when you wake up has nothing to do with your dreams, it's just a made-up story that you came up with as you woke up, it's still interesting and relevant because it's a story that you think happened, the way you tell it somehow reflects your inner thoughts and your experiences and what bothers you. So therapy that's based on the story that you tell, what we call dream diaries, is super interesting and relevant, even though it might not be what actually happened in your sleep. Wow. But that's still the stream that a lot of people spend time on and they kind of wake up and they say, oh my God, I dreamt about uh, me on a plane and it was flying about and they kind of are very engaged in this story. And it's still important because it's somehow a narrative that your brain comes up with. So put that aside, the two streams that neuroscientists spend a lot of time right now, one is actually getting the content of the dream when you're sleeping. So not waiting for you to wake up, but actually probing in your brain using electrodes that we put inside or using machines that get readings of the brain without waking you up like fMRI or EEG and somehow getting a, some residue of the visual that you see in your sleep or the semantic content and actually extracting the dream. And then when you wake up, we can actually ask you what you think the dream was and pit it against what we think the dream was and give you more clues to things that you forgot or even see why your dream was about the ocean, but you dreamt about land and your brain totally made up a different story. That's kind of the approach that a lot of scientists are spending a lot of time right now. And a mini approach that I'm involved with, but still very, very crude and still not the mainstream approach is try to influence them. So question number three in that kind of path that we just kind of described is not letting your brain come up with a story, but actually plant one. And that's an interesting idea because we have evidence that suggests that the what I plant into your brain when you're sleeping in the form of a dream may actually influence your awake behavior. It will change things afterwards. So now scientists are trying to see what can we do that changes your experiences. So at the very least you have a good dream or not have bad dream. That's the minimum thing we can try to do. Uh, maybe help you strengthen memories or weaken bad ones. Those are kind of easy steps and maybe create experiences that you take with you when you wake up. Those are the three things. Wow, you know, especially that third stream, I find so fascinating of how we can actually change learning and memory and even behavior in our sleep when we're, when we're not awake. And you've talked about this 
this 2015 smoker study where they actually like managed to basically keep people from smoking for a couple of days afterwards. So can you share with us how you, how exactly the process of like manipulating that works? So this is a work by Anat Arzi and Noam Subel. They were the first authors to basically look at sleep and uh, focus on a stage of sleep called slow wave sleep, where your brain essentially is, if you want, rethinking uh, kind of events from the wake life. And with smells, they could uh, probe the brain into uh, rethinking about smoking. Just spraying the smell of nicotine into the nose makes the brain kind of consider what is the value of smoking. And then they blasted the brain with negative smells. The smell they use is rotten egg smell, which is known to penetrate the brain, make you have aversive thoughts, but not wake you up. So you still stay asleep. So basically the pairing of those two things makes people somehow think negatively of smoking, such as when they wake up, even though they have no idea what happened. They don't know that someone did all of those things, spread smell into their nose and change things. They somehow have a negative feeling towards smoking for the next 10 days, I think it was in the study. So that, that's kind of one approach. And since then, for the last five years, there have been a number of studies that kind of looked at different angles and different applications of the same idea that try to use smells to make you have positive, pleasant dreams or negative ones. Just, just bad or good smells change the kind of path of your dream. There are studies with, uh, they use auditory sounds, uh, 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 cues to it basically reactivate memories such that you get to rehearse things. So you learn something when you're awake. Uh, I don't know, you read a Wikipedia entry and there's a lot of facts and you have to memorize them. And then when you go to sleep, they use sounds to make you remember or rehearse some of the facts, but not others. And then they show that when you wake up, the ones that were reactivated using sounds when you sleep are the ones you remember and the other ones you forgot. So it kind of shows that you can uh, train the brain to reprocess things that were already in there strongly when you sleep. And all of those are just ways to suggest that when we go to sleep, our brain isn't sleeping. It's not, not doing anything. It's, it's actually doing a lot. Some, some parts of the brain actually work even harder when we're sleeping than when they are when we're awake. We lose weight uh, by sleeping because our brain is burning so much energy processing things. And now we can use those processes to actually give you more control of your brain, even though you're in a way consciousness-wise uh, dormant when they happen. Yeah, that is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And so, so there's a question I've been wondering about for years, and I haven't found the right person to ask yet. So I think you're the one for that. So, so in the personal development industry, there is this idea of like writing down your goals, like the evening or like it, like right before you go to sleep, basically. In fact, you know, Thomas Edison once said, like, never go to sleep without a request to the subconscious. So I'm so curious, like, is there some kind of like neuroscientific explanation of like why should you know, write down and like visualize your goals right before you sleep and so they actually like imprint upon the subconscious? So first of all, if you just kind of go to the thing we said earlier that like writing goals allows you to kind of calibrate your compass and so on, that's always a good idea. So, so that's already having kind of a note with what you want to do and then adapt, adapting it every now and then, good idea. Now doing it before you go to sleep, seems to be even better idea because we know that in sleep our brain essentially does a few things like strengthening memories weakening bad ones but also uh, one of the kind of functions of dreams suggested by some scientists is that actually it simulates futures for us and then filters those to our emotions so maybe you say i really wanna uh, i don't know where do you live right now uh switzerland Okay, so maybe you say, I live in Switzerland right now, but my dream is to move to California. Mm -hmm. You've never been to California, you've never lived there, but you say, this is my dream, I wanna do that. So if you do that, 
in the form of writing it or rigid it, rehearsing it and so on, there's a chance that your brain is going to say, okay, he really wants that. Let's see kind of how it's going to work. And instead of having you actually relocate and move and learn after two months in California, they don't want to be there, your brain can create the ultimate virtual reality. It creates a dream where you're in California and you're living there. And because for the time of dream, your brain doesn't know it's dreaming. It's filtered through our emotions as if it's reality, so much so that all of the experiences that we go through are as real as they get. And we actually get to feel how California would be, the temperature, the people around us, the smell, and so on. They all feel like they're reality. It's like better than any VR experience that you've ever had because it's created by your brain. And then when you wake up, even if you forget everything that you dreamt of, the experiences are still filtered in your emotions, such that you might have a different opinion when you wake up and say, you know what, I'm thinking about it a lot. Suddenly something like California doesn't feel right to me and I don't know, I might want to stay in Geneva. So in that sense, I think that uh, dreams function is to create simulations for us. And if you do this writing exercise, you kind of just point your brain to what video you want it to create for you. So the simulation would be about California and not about going to get ice cream that you know you'd like and it's like a waste of a dream. So that's one theory about what, what dreams are for. And, and it starts again with you actually just pointing your brain by writing it down or actually speaking about it to someone just before you go to sleep or doing something that will keep it kind of floating in the brain in an accessible fashion. Wow, that is so cool. And so, so for our listeners, um, an example that maybe all of you guys are aware of, if you haven't like written down your goals the night before, maybe you're like watching a horror movie, right? And you're like, you go to sleep and you're just having the worst of nightmares because you just watch some people, you know, breaking into the house with the axe. So I think all of us are familiar with that kind of like priming our brain to actually focus and, and like dream about that stuff, right? So it's really about like becoming more intentional about how we actually want to dream. So it is yeah. so fascinating. I, th- I think dreams don't exist in a void. They, t- they borrow things from our experiences in the, in the world. So it's not guaranteed that if you watch the horror film, you will dream about horror film. It's not guaranteed that there's one-to-one mapping, but it's pretty likely that things that are in your mind would, would leak into your dream. There's a few studies that had people play games for hours when they're awake, and then those, dr- those games were in their dream either directly or a version of them. I think if they play Tetris when they're awake, they either dreamt of Tetris or they just dreamt of them walking in a building that has bricks falling at them. So somehow your, your brain kind of creates a, a version of that that is a mix of the things you're afraid of, the things you care about, the things that you actually want to experience going forward into a narrative that you can reflect on. And I think it's, we have not yet found the uh, one-to-one mapping that if you watch you know, movie one, you will dream of... A, story too, but we found enough evidence that the correlation between them, that it's important to direct your story such that you have some kind of access to what it is about. Absolutely love that. And so you talked about the, the effect of sounds on our brain at, at night before. So, so one of the, another thing really I'm, I'm super interesting is like listening to affirmations at night, for example. So, you know, you're going to sleep, you plug in your, your guided meditation, whatever. So is that like, is there also some scientific evidence showing that, like, you know, if you're just listening to your, your positive affirmations at night, that can also then go down into the subconscious mind? Unfortunately, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit uh, in the following way. Uh, to the, so what we know is that if you just go to sleep with some input into the senses, continuously, your brain rejects it entirely. So if you go to sleep with like a tape that says you're great, you're, you're doing it, everything, 
at some point your brain is going to say, okay, it's bothering me. It makes me not sleep well. And it's just going to basically block inputs. And it says, okay, I'm trying to sleep. Uh, and the best way to sleep is to avoid any inputs and just focus on the internal world. And it will just not hear anything. So the trick is to actually start playing the sound or start playing the uh, cues. It could be the, the, the olfactory cues or the uh, tactile cues only when the brain is receptive. So if you think of a night as like a, say, a seven-hour experience, there are windows in the night where your brain is listening and there are windows where it doesn't. And if you target correctly, if you do things in the right moment, then your brain actually is responsive and it works. But if you start doing it randomly in different times, your brain's going to reject everything. And that is why you still need to have a neuroscientist who knows how to detect those windows and do that. So if you just go to sleep with a tape, it's not that uh, likely that uh, anything will happen. Your brain just going to kind of block everything. There's a beautiful quote by Freud in his book uh, where he says uh, that, I mean, he was baffled by what dreams are for. Like we are even to date, even though we have a lot more understanding of some of their functions right now. And he had that nice theory that I like that says hey, the dreams are the guardians of sleep. He said, basically, you go to sleep and there's noise, construction outside. In a normal world, it would just wake you up and you would not be able to sleep because there's always noise and always flickering light from some building nearby or your dog is barking. If, if every time there's some problem, your brain's going to get out of sleep, you would not be able to maintain good sleep and the brain needs hours of solid sleep to work well. So he said, we created a system that allows us to take the sound of the alarm and for the first few rings, actually put it in our dream before it's violating the reality so much that we actually wake up. So our brain is somehow creating a system that will not wake up uh, unless we want to. And that's the dream. Uh, that's a theory, one of six. So there are many others, but that's something that I like about Freud's suggestion. And in that sense, it's not going to work. If you just play a tape that kind of repeatedly says you're great, it has to be played in the right time and, uh, and then it's going to work. Yeah, that's certainly, like you said, is disappointing, <laughs> but also super fascinating as also points to, to future research then, I'm assuming, in, in terms of like how we can actually make this more practical and bring it more into like everyday life. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that they, a lot of scientists are trying to see if there's a way to broaden those window of time so we can do more or detect them faster, mm -hmm. almost automatically, so you can build machines that sit next to your bed and know that you're in this state and immediately start kind of doing something to you. Because right now we actually have to have a neuroscientist, look at your brain activity while you're sleeping, use her kind of judgment to say he's right now in the moment where he's likely to be receiving inputs and not waking up and adapting and then, you know, start spraying smells and playing tapes and so on. So it still requires me sitting next to you the entire night while you're dreaming, not a scalable solution. So we're trying to find different ways to do it. For sure, super fascinating what's for, for what's going to happen there in the future. Um, but to another big topic that, that you initially put on that list of, of areas you want to study is free will. Um, yeah. So I'm super curious how your view has evolved on, you know, who's the puppeteer and who's the agent in our lives? Um, unfortunately, the world of free will is very similar to the world of a big bang in physics, which, which means that we can go all the way to the beginning, but not before. Uh, you know, we can explain everything about the universe from the moment it was a single uh, mass that's very condensed and following, but we don't know how this starts. And the same is true for free will. We're getting farther and farther from the moment of action in predicting the action, but still there's a mystery kind of what happens 
before that. So if you're, a, I don't know, clapping your hands right now or raising your right hand rather than the left one, uh, there are signals in your brain that told me seconds before you raised your right one that you're about to raise the right one. There's, of course, part of the brain that actually sends the signal to the hand to move the muscles. There's another part before that that plans how much energy the brain would need to send the signal to the hand to actually do that. There's another part that makes the decision. And we can trace it back to about a second and a half. Some scientists even claim that they can go to 10 seconds before, which is a lot. Yeah. So 10 seconds before you say something, they already know what you're going to say. Uh, that's, that's pretty advanced and, and even uh, questionable by some other scientists. because It's so difficult to go that far with the technology we have right now. But at the same time, uh, even if we are convinced that we can predict your action 10 seconds before, immediately we'll ask, well, what happens 11 seconds before? Any cascade of options had to have started with some journal of thoughts even prior. And here the scientists are baffled. They, they are at some point kind of resulting to all kinds of uh, claims about quantum effect that lead things to happen, probability uh, that could, you could actually... Uh, raise the left hand rather than the right. It's just like probabilities of random effect led to the system going one way or the other. Uh, and the other extreme is the total determinism. People say that basically when you're born, if we looked at all the system of the world, we could predict that at age 40, you would raise your uh, right hand. Uh, so I think that the, uh, we have no cool answer other than the one thing that I think is relevant to know, which is one thing we definitely are certain about, is that the moment you raise your hand is not the moment where you wanted to. So if, you, uh, if someone asks you a question and you say, I made a choice, and this is my choice, and I made it right now, what we know is definitely that's not the case. The choice was made before, maybe a second before, maybe a lot earlier, but it's not when you think it happens. So if you go to the restaurant and someone offers you on the menu three items and you choose the salmon, and someone asks, when do you choose? And you say, no, when you offered me. We know that if someone looked at your brain, it's probably uh, written there before you even were aware of the three options, that when you would become aware of the three options, you would choose a salmon. And that's not how we experience the world. So that's at least one learning that we have from the last 10 years. Yeah, that is so cool. And I've actually seen videos of, of you actually um, predicting in advance the, the button that, that people are going to press in a box, right? Which is so cool to see. Yeah, so, we, so this is, you know, this is a cool from our perspective as, as, as kind of experiencing animals to know that we can predict the actions of people seconds before they happen. But it's not surprising to scientists because as I said, like we know that there's a cascade. So in our experiments, we actually probe in your brain and we find cells that dictate your choices about a second before they happen, let's say. So we know at time zero that in one second, you're gonna press a button and then we can toy with you. We can uh, move the button away from you just before it happened or turn a light on just before you do it. And you kind of see that your actions happen after uh, you, before you executed them. So someone read your mind kind of a little bit earlier and that's cool, but not surprising. Scientists knew that all along that if, if the brain is the CPU that kind of sends a signal, then there must be a delay between the moment things happen and the moment we know about them. And then we can use that gap to do things. So now we just demonstrated it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there, it becomes so apparent talking to you. It's like there's all these other influences on our behavior that we're not aware of, whether that is other voices inside of our mind or whether that is the environment. You know, we all notice through marketing, right? Affecting how we think about things and how we feel and how we act. So I'm super curious, like how... 
how can people, you know, practically use this? I know you, you're big into like marketing and all that aspect, but for people that really want to, you know, set up their environments in their own lives more in a, in a way that's actually beneficial to them. Do you have any advice for people on how, how to do that? So I, I, I have, I'll give you advice uh, that's, I think, important to the, cost, to the, to the uh, customer and to the uh, service provider. And I yeah. think that that is uh, the lens I'm taking on that. So I, I'm teaching in a business school. Most of my students uh, are potential kind of company owners and CEOs and managers. And many times when I teach them how influence uh, works and how easy it is to change our brain and to not just to go into one direction versus the other by manipulating things, they are alarmed and they are kind of rising up and down and say, this is not okay. I'll give you a quick example. When we talk about uh, something that everyone knows, that, that the prices of items in the supermarket many times are uh, $6.99, yeah. right? Like cognitively, you know that it's actually seven, but it's building on the fact that humans read numbers from left to right in most uh, Western languages. And because they have to say it's six, what stays is the six, and somehow they basically think it's cheaper than it actually is and they're buying it. This is a trick that uh, is trivial. Every kid that learns how numbers work at some point kind of becomes baffled by this thing, but it still works. We know that if you change the sale of items from $6 to $6.99, uh, you change the kind of uh, number of people who, uh, sorry, I said six, six, between $6.99 and seven, you actually change uh, a lot of things in people's purchases. So my students immediately don't like it. They say, this is cheating. This is you basically exploiting us and, and showing how vulnerable our brain is and then using it against us. And I say, great, I'm glad you said that because you're in position to be the people deciding to not do that in three years when you finish a position in one of those companies. Kind of pledge right now to not do the same things. And I think that uh, many of them, I think, in their mind, plan to do something else and end up following the same kind of path that a lot of other companies do. Somehow they kind of lose the compass that I was alluding to early on. It's, it's the reality of the world we live in right now. I'm not a fan of that. The point is that scientists have discovered a lot about the brain and gave us a battery of tools that use our brain's powers against us. Selling us things in moments of weakness, uh, you know, putting things in the supermarket right when we're about to check out that we're gonna take in self kind of impulse and lose our self control. All, all of those things work. And I think that my best advice to anyone who is a listener is if you don't like it, don't forget you didn't like it when you have a position of power to do it to others. If we all agree that we don't like it and not do that, then the world's gonna be different world. Like it, there won't be 699s. They're going to be either sevens or sixes. And I think that in a way, what drives this is the kind of conflict tension between us as customers and us as business kind of owners. And I'm not a business owner, so it's easy for me to say that. And some that are in positions of, you know, their business is going to not survive if they won't make the quarterly sales might say, I can't afford to do that. But I think that at least it should be reminded uh, through the lens of your podcast that uh, our brains are very, very uh, easily manipulated. Even though we think we're smart and we think that we're kind of able to distinguish between good and bad and so on, most of us 
cannot really survive the complexity of uh, the amount of things around us. There are too many croissant shops out there. There are too many cake shops out there. And if we create a world where there's constant challenges, we're going to fail. If we fight against companies like, you know, the digital monopolies of Silicon Valley that have tons of people who spend all of their energy trying to get you to click more or to spend five more minutes on this kind of platform or that platform, you will fail. There is many more of them and they have a lot more time to invest in you than you have to invest in fighting for yourself. So the thing that we should all uh, thrive for isn't learning the tricks and thinking that if we know them, we're going to not fail for them, but actually creating a world that those tricks are not part of the reality. So if I teach you that 699 is actually seven, you might know it and it might actually help you not fail for it, uh, fall for it later on. But it's better that I teach you not to put 699 as a company later on and help the world throughout. That's my view. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And I, I think the reality is there's so many biases in the human brain that you, it's just impossible to, to be aware of every single one of them we're falling for right at that moment when we're falling for it. Um, so I totally agree that, that probably the best way to go about it is just not create those kind of biases in a way that, that makes us do things that we really don't want to do or, yeah. or really shouldn't do oftentimes. The fact that people are overweight, the fact that people, uh, uh, I mean, I use overweight and that's, that they smoke, that they have a lot of car accidents, it's not given. It's because we created a world that uh, kind of favors short-term profits at the expense of our livelihood at times. So uh, we all want sugar. It's very tasty. And so the cake is going to win if uh, we can't stop ourselves. Like the, if there is a cake in your house, you will at some point eat it. Uh, yes. The trick is not to have it and ideally have someone who has more power than you help you not eat. You know, I, uh, I learned recently about uh, Alcoholic Anonymous and kind of there, I think it's 12 or maybe 15 steps uh, kind of uh, process where if you try to kind of become sober, they have you go to. And I think it involves, as a big step, accountability with others. You have to have other people help you because your brain that's supposed to protect you will fail. You will, if, if it's just about you, you have no chance because the alcohol companies, their interest is to find the flaws in your, in your brain and give you kind of the kind of opportunity to do something that goes against you. So if you want to solicit the help of others, you will fail. And I think that is in my mind, what's true for a lot of things in the world right now. A lot of things become addictive or tempting or difficult to manage. Uh, and we need help is either of some entity that we kind of endow with the power to regulate the world and change things or friends or just uh, systems that created allow us to do that. Absolutely love that. Now we talked about so many you know, different ideas and tips and tricks today and how to live better. So if you could give our listeners just one challenge or one action step to take away from this and start applying today, what would be that one thing? Keep a diary. Yeah. I think that, I think that the one thing that uh, it seems to help a lot of people that uh, really allows you to kind of see yourself in light that is not biased by your brain is to keep a diary. And what I mean by that is uh, it's very easy for us to look back and tell us of a story that takes away data points that didn't work for us. So uh, we stay with diets for a second. Uh, if we want a diet uh, and we look back at the year prior and say, how come I didn't lose weight even though I tried diet? 
And you kind of forget, uh, you, you tell us a story, yeah, I, there was this time where I had this uh, dire cake at midnight by myself, but this was just one time, so it can't be that. And you, for, you basically ignore the fact that there were like 10 times of that, mm-hmm. and that uh, it wasn't midnight, it was like 6 p.m. And you were like, you kind of, uh, you know, change the narrative to make yourself look better, because it's very hard for us to see ourselves in an objective, unbiased way. Uh, and I think that if we keep a diary, then somehow there's data. And then when we kind of confronted it, we have to make decisions differently. So if you even want to just for 10 days, keep a diary where you write your choices, where you write why you made them, where you write how you felt when you made the choices, who you're with, what were the conditions outside, the temperature, the uh, stress level you're at, and so on. And you look back at those 10 days, you will immediately start seeing yourself in a different light. You'll say, you know what? Every time I'm spending time with uh, Max, I make good decisions. So maybe I should spend more time with him. Every time I uh, eat things that are unhealthy, it's when I eat after midnight. So maybe I should not, like you, you'll start seeing it and you would not let your brain kind of, you know, manipulate reality to make you look better. You will have some data to look at. And I think that that's the easiest kind of, I, I have many, but that's the easiest kind of one advice that I would give any person if they wanted to improve their life instantly. Yeah, absolutely. Love this idea of really objectively studying ourselves and getting to know ourselves and getting this more more data, right? That actually allows an experiment. Us to, to, I would yes. say if if you go there, I would say study like keep data and experiment. I think scientists what they do is they don't just make assumptions about how things are going to work. They make experiments. So they say uh, if you think you have extremely good self control and you won't eat the cake, uh, no matter what buy a big cake, put it in your kitchen and wait 10 days. And if you manage to not eat the cake in those 10 days, you can say, okay, I have one data point right now that shows that I actually have good self-control. So great. So now I know something about myself. If you didn't manage to say, okay, now I know that, I, that I'm not able to, so I need to actually make sure that there are no cakes in my apartment because otherwise I will fall. Like in a way, experimenting, trying things is how scientists do that. They, they kind of have assumptions on how things are going to work, but they try them. And if they fail or succeed, they know something about themselves. And I think people uh, have assumptions on testing without testing. They think, oh, I have no problem with putting a cake. Here, buy it. I, I'm going to be okay. If, because they think I'm, I have perfect self-control. You know, everyone is above average driver in their mind. So if you say, okay, let's see how many accidents did I have? How many times I had a near accident? How many times did my neighbor have? It's you start kind of seeing yourself in true light and it will be really helpful to everyone to know who they are truly. Absolutely love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? I'm the easiest person to find uh, uh, for good or bad. So because I'm a scientist, I don't, you know, have a, I have a website. My email is on the front page and I get hundreds of emails every day from people who have kind of shared with me stories, have questions and so on. And even though it takes me sometimes, I so far have never not responded. So, so I, I would immediately say I can't respond in the next two weeks, but I promise I will. And I do that. So I, I really find it like a, important for scientists to actually speak to people and not just like live in their kind of, you know, a sheltered environment, talk to themselves. So I spend a lot of time talking to people and going on a podcast and try to explain my work in different ways. I feel it's really important. It's my duty. And I spend a lot of time doing that. So I'm the easiest guy to find. If you just look up my name, you will find my website. And if you go there, you will find a lot of things more than you want uh, that I did before videos and stories and lectures and articles, and also my direct contact that you can use if you have any questions about that you think would be helpful to you. Absolutely. Love that. Now, final question. What does it mean for you to max out your life? I think that, uh, so if you go back to the idea that we had a list of like uh, things that you want to 
5.4, I think the more of those things that you get to uh, experience, not even accomplish, like, but like if you wanted to do that and if you went, like you wanted to body jump, you don't have to actually do that, but you have to get to the place where you stand and talk like it and you say, you know what, I don't want to do that. Now I'm too scared. I don't want to do it. It's okay like, to not succeed, but it's not okay to kind of want something and not even go there. So to max out is to have this list with uh, sig signals next to each uh, bullet point. Maybe it's going to be a check. Maybe it's going to be an X. It just shouldn't be empty. Wow. Absolutely love that. And thank you so much for, for coming on the show. More than happy, Max. It was fantastic. And I think we covered a lot. I'm glad that your audience. Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> All right, guys. That's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gained. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life. So to really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now, guys, at this point, I want to ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider, you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.